We're back in the book of Amos tonight. Dave did a great job last week giving us a history lesson on the Reformation, which we appreciate. Uh, we're in Amos, looking at chapters 1 and 2, basically. We've, we've introduced this as the roar of justice, this book. It's a prophet, Amos, who was basically a farmer. He wasn't... Um, the prophet, nor a son of the prophet. He didn't go to prophet school, you could say. But God put a burden on his heart, and he was obedient to God's call, and he became God's voice to uh, the nations back during this time. And so as you turn to Amos, we want to be looking at uh, verses, chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. And we've, we've looked at, up to this point, we've looked at the judgments against these nations, the enemies of Israel. And with each judgment, it starts off with, thus says the Lord. That's how you know another one's coming. And so uh, we, we see here in verse 4 of chapter 2 that he begins judgment not just on the enemies of Judah and Israel, but on Judah and Israel themselves. And so <clears throat> we're going to read these verses and then we'll pray and then get into it a little bit. Verse 4 says, Thus says the Lord, for three, three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Remember, three transgressions of Judah and four, it just means that this is something that is irrevocable. It's going to happen. It's, it, it's a Jewish idiom, and it basically means once this progress starts, there's nothing stopping it. And then he says, because they have, why is he judging Judah? Because they have rejected the law of God, the law of the Lord, and have not kept his statutes, but their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. And then here comes the next one, not only Judah, but Israel as well. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because, and he begins to give the reasons, they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth, verse 7 says, and turn aside the way of the afflicted, a man and his father, another charge against them, will go into the same woman or same girl, so that my holy name is profane. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge, and in the house of their God they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Verse 9, Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and whose, who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also, it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. Verse 11, And I raised you up, some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? In other words, I've done all this stuff for you. 
You're my people. I love you. I've done all this stuff for you. But what have you done? Verse 12, but you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets saying, you shall not prophesy. Behold, I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Flight shall perish from the swift and the strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself, nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. Father, we ask you to give us wisdom as we look at these verses and look at the punishment, not only of Israel's people, but the punishment of Israel the punishment of your people. And Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you that we can apply it to our own lives. And Lord, help us do that tonight. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. So we've looked at so far the revelation of the Lord's coming judgment. We've seen the picture of the Lord as a lion that roars, and we talked about that. We saw the punishment of Israel's enemies. And all six cases start with, thus says the Lord. And we went through all of those. And you can do an interesting historical study on each city. We, we don't have time to do all that, but there's a, a lot of history behind each one of those, those uh, enemies of Israel. Damascus, Gaza, Tyre, Edom, uh, Ammon, Moab. They all have certain things that God accuses them to of, and we, we went through that. And, and now he begins to speak to the people of God. Uh, that they are going to be punished. And he does that in verses 4 and 5. First of all, we see the punishment of, of those who were in Judah. He accuses them of, what, rejecting the law. He comes at them, really, and says, you know what, you, you're, you're, I've given you the word of God. I've given you everything you need to live this life before me, but you've chosen to reject it. And he goes on, and that's the main sin that he accuses them of. But then he goes on and he lists a litany of sins that we're going to go over tonight, accusing Israel of, of all these sins. And last week, or a couple of weeks ago when we, when we finished, we, we stated a couple principles, and they're listed there in your outline. The first one was the God of justice takes note of what is going on in this world. And we think, well, people are getting away with stuff. No, they're not. They're not getting away with it. And one day they will have to stand before a judge. <clears throat> one day they will have to answer for everything that they do. And even though these nations didn't have the Ten Commandments, they didn't have the Word of God, God still held them accountable. And the reason is because He's given us all a conscience. And Romans 1 explains all of that. So a lot of times Christians think, well, I'm a Christian, all my sins are forgiven, so it doesn't really... Um, matter how I live? No, it does. Because you're not, uh, not too far away from the disciplining hand of the Lord. And he will discipline you if you disregard his word. And so Judah was basically held account for not adhering to what God had given them, what information he had given them. 
But the God of justice takes note of what's going on around the world. Secondly, we said this God of justice holds nations accountable. Not only does he see what's going on, but he's going to hold them accountable one day. And he's not just, you know, pulling a, uh, uh, putting a pillow over his head and saying, well, I don't want to look at this anymore. No, he sees exactly what's going on. He knows exactly what's going on. And whether you're a king, whether you're a president, whether you're a prime minister, military, political, individual, pastor, whatever it might be, one day you will be held account. Okay? And it's very important that we understand that. And so this God holds nations accountable. And then thirdly, we said this God of justice judges nations when it pleases him. When it pleases him. That's the key term there. It doesn't happen on our timeline. You know, a lot of speculation is going on. Oh, this might be the end times. It could be. With all these wars cropping up all over the place, it could be. We could be getting out of here tonight. Who knows? <laughs> Long for that. But you know what? There's still people that need the Lord. There's still a reason God has us here. Uh, just yesterday, I was out here... Uh, doing some stuff, and I saw the neighbor across the street, and he was out there tending his roses, so I always strike up a conversation with him. His name's Joe. You can start to pray for his salvation, because I think God's doing something there. I don't know what it is, but it's been years in the making. But uh, he said, hey, can I ask you a question? I go, sure. He goes, why are all these people against Israel? What is their problem? And I said, well, do you want the short answer or the long answer? He said, I just want an answer. So I sat there for about 30 minutes talking to him of the history of Israel and the God's people. And here's, and at the end of the conversation, he said, thank you. Thank you. That's very insightful. That, that, that's kind of where I was going with it, but I just wanted to make sure. And you can pray for his salvation. His name's Joe. Nice guy, but doesn't know the Lord. Um, and so each time the Lord brings an indictment to these accused nations here, um, you see over and over, I will not revoke, I will not turn it away, he says. Uh, you're going to get judged. Uh, we we want to praise God that we live in the New Testament, right? But we're not too far away from the disciplining hand of the Lord if we choose to sin willfully before him. And so we just need to be reminded of that. Uh, now, the last, from from basically verse... Uh, six down there, he starts to name the sins of Israel. Yeah, Judah and Israel, divided kingdom, remember. And in verse six, he says, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not turn away his punishment. Why? Why won't he turn away his punishment? Because our God is what? A just God. A just God. He can't just turn a blind eye to sin. So he finds the same sins, we're going to find out, in Israel, his chosen people, as he did in these pagan nations, which is a real problem for his people. <laughs> See, we, we think sometimes, oh, we're, we're in the age of grace and, you know, all of our sins are forgiven and we're good to go. Uh, you don't want to press against the hand of God. If you're a Christian here tonight, you want to make sure that you're living for the Lord. You're doing things that the Lord is calling you to do, directing you to do through his word. You don't want to just go off on your own and do whatever you want and say, ah, my sins are paid for. 
I've met Christians like that. Well, what does it matter? They're all paid for. I'm going to go to heaven no matter what I do. I, I think that's not really a believer that understands repentance nor understands their own salvation. They probably aren't saved. First John points that out. And so here he's finding these same sins in his own chosen people. They're willfully present. They know better. God has warned them. He's given them everything they need. And so he is going to judge them. And uh, he's going to judge them actually more severely than he does the pagan nations. And that's a lesson for us, is it not? Um, God's not going to deal lightly with us if we have all the information and we have the Holy Spirit and we can do exactly what God calls us to do, be holy for I am holy, we have the ability to do that with the Spirit, with the Word, with the fellowship, with brothers and sisters holding us accountable. We can do that. We have all those privileges. And last week we left off, or two weeks ago, with the idea that, you know what, privilege brings what? Responsibility, right? The more privileged information you have as an individual, the more responsible you should be. And see, these were people who were in covenant to God. The Gentile nations didn't have a covenant with God. But Israel, Judah, did. Uh, the law of God was the basis of that covenant. And yet, in one way or another, we're going to find out that Israel had broken every one of the Ten Commandments and disregarded God's law, just threw it aside. And God gave them as kind of caretakers of his word. And they just disregarded it. And there's a principle there. And the principle is simply this. God is coming to them in judgment. And if God judges the lost, the nations around uh, Israel, for injustices and broken commandments and all these things, their sins, what will he do with those who claim to know him? Uh, we have to be aware of this. This is a message, I believe, from Amos, even for the church today. Because with every privilege, there is great responsibility. And Jesus said this in the New Testament, too. This is just an Old Testament. What did Jesus say? To whom much is what? Given, much will be required, right? You think about how much we have today as Christians. I mean, you can go on the Internet, hear sermons. You can go on the radio, hear sermons. You can go on TV, hear sermons. You can open up your Bible on a, on a convenient iPad or a phone. There's nowhere in the world you could go to get away from God's Word if you really wanted it. You can carry it in your pocket. It's amazing. And yet, today is probably one of the... <laughs> the church is, is, is one of the weakest <laughs> that it's ever been. And unfortunately, that's, that's, that's the reality of it. And even when you come to Paul's letter to the church of Corinth, and you look at them, and, and you look at, you know, they were very gifted spiritually in so many different ways, but what did they do? They were committing sins. They were committing sins of immorality. And Paul says, these sins of immorality they committed weren't even named among the Gentiles. That's how bad it was. And these were supposed to be Christian people. They were mocking the Lord's table. Um, and so he says what? Let a man examine himself. And so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup, for he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. 
For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. This is what Paul tells the Corinthian church in, in the book of Corinthians. And, and it's important to, to, to realize, I hear so many times in churches, and it's mostly Christians, we'll have communion service and somebody inevitably will come up to me after the service. Oh, did, you, did you see that? This, that person took communion. <laughs> or they let their children take communion. I get it. You don't want to mock communion. You don't want it to make it just a time where you eat a cracker and it's some juice. But for the most part, those people probably aren't even believers. That's not who Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians. He's talking about Christians. He's telling Christians, you need to examine your own heart before you take communion. So many times I hear, oh yeah, you know, boy, if you're an unbeliever and you take communion, you could die. You could get sick. You know, look at what Paul says. He was talking about Christians, my friends. Christians. They were disregarding the Lord's table. So you have to ask yourself this question. Is there any difference, really, between the church and the world? Is there any difference? Can you see any difference? At times, I think, the church and those who name the name of Christ, to be honest, are worse than the world. They're worse than the world. Oh, they may put a pasty little smile on when they come to church on Sunday and dress up and, you know, know how to act in church. But the rest of the time of the week, what are they doing? They're not reading their Bibles. They're not fellowshipping with anybody. They're not doing anything. And they have all the information. With much privilege comes much responsibility. And that's the way it was in Amos's day. And that's, that's why he, he was so distraught. Remember what his name means, burdened, right? That's why he was so burdened. He saw the, the disparity of his day. He saw people naming themselves to be religious, but living in a way that was totally disregarding God's word. And I'm fearful that's the way it has become in our own day today. And so in verses 6 of chapter 2, all the way down to verse 16, the prophet starts naming off these sins of Israel. And so let's look at these, these sins. Um, the first one there is found in verse 6, the latter part of it, and in the start of, of verse 7. He says, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Israel and for four I will not revoke the punishment. Why? Because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, those who trample the head of the poor into the, the, the dust of the earth. What, what's he accused them of? He, he accuses them of greed, bottom line, and bribery. You know, if you're a believer here tonight and you're in any kind of business, I pray that your business dealings are straight up. I pray you do things the right way. Pray the tax man is paid up. Do we keep our word in our transactions? Are our business ethics superior to those around us? 
This is the way it should be as a believer. As an employee, how do you treat your bosses? As an employer, how do you treat your employee? See, God's people in Amos' day, there was no difference between them and the world. This was the problem. And this is where we are today. So they were accused of bribery. They were accused of being greedy. And those words kind of speak for themselves. They sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. And they trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth. They just, they don't care. Turn aside uh, the way of the afflicted. They have no compassion. They have no empathy for anybody. They are only focused on themselves. And this has crept into the church big time. There are so many false teachers within the church that are greedy people. A lot of them live on TBN, on your TVs. They're always asking for your money. Constantly begging for your money as they live in their multi-million dollar mansions and drive their multi-million dollar, fly their multi-million dollar jets around the world. And yet people still give them money. I do not understand it. Don't understand it. They're telling everybody who has less money than them, oh, you need to give that $100 pledge, $1,000 pledge, and then God will bless you. Well, if God blesses you, my friend, by he's going to bless me by giving you $1,000, why don't you just give yourself, you have money, use your own money. <laughs> Maybe God will bless you with more money. I don't know, but it just doesn't add up. So they were filled with bribery, greed. Secondly, they were guilty of adultery and Sexual sin. Verse 7, look at what it says at the end there. It says, a man and his father go into the same girl so that his, my holy name is profaned. Not only were they accused of bribery and greed, and this is God's people we're talking about. This is God's chosen nation. We aren't talking about the Gentiles here. They were guilty of the sexual sins. I mean, surely you would think the, 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 the ethics within the church as far as sexuality goes and professing believers would be higher than that of the world. I mean, I remember going, hearing this statistic before the internet really went crazy when you used to have to, when you would go to a hotel and you had to be careful what channels you watched at the hotel because they had adult programming on the, on the uh, entertainment channels of the hotel. And I remember talking one time to a guy at a front desk of a hotel, and he was going over the bill, and he goes, oh, you don't have any other charges. That's good. And I go, what do you mean? He goes, well, I guess. He goes, he goes are you a pastor? I said, yeah, I was a youth pastor then. And he goes, uh, I'll just tell you, he goes, when you guys come to town, he goes, a lot of these bills, a lot of money goes to watching pornography in their, in their rooms. And these are supposed to be pastors. It's sad. I just, I didn't know what to say to the guy. I just, I'm kind of like, well, I'm glad there's none of mine, you know, kind of like broke up the tension because it was such a tension. And he wasn't a believer. But he said, yeah, we make a lot of money on that when you guys come to town. I thought, wow. Um, and that's true. 
it is true. It's, it's a problem within the church. And now it's to an exp exponential level because, you know what, just as, you know, giant TVs have gotten bigger and bigger and bigger, right? They've also gotten smaller and smaller and smaller. And you, you, can, you can watch things that are just considered vile in the eyes of God, and no one will ever know. God knows, but no one will ever know. And it's, it's, it's raging the church today. I mean, here it, it explicitly says a man and his father. You think that a father would be a good, want to be a good example to his son, right? I mean, that's, but just like it was back then, they didn't care the same thing today. Parents don't care. They don't care if they're a good example to their kids. They, they really don't. I'm not saying all parents, but a vast majority of them are that way. You would expect fathers to be a better example to their sons than this. I mean, we even see it here in the Bay Area, in the San Francisco Bay Area. You know, they're opening up the door slowly for legalizing prostitution, even in San Francisco. They want to have a red light district, and they want to do all this stuff. And it's, it's slowly <laughs> making its way. They're legitimizing something that is disgraceful in the eyes of God. It's offensive. And so there's a secret sin in the evangelical church today, and really we're kind of afraid to talk about it. But I guarantee you, it affects a vast majority of people. And by the way, it's not just men, ladies. Women have an issue with this as well because it's so readily available. Pornography is just a scourge. In one survey, 57% of pastors in the United States testified that addiction to pornography is the most sexually damaging issue in their congregation. I mean, God's people have got to the stage where they're no different than the world. No different than the world. They've, matter of fact, they've invited the world into the church. That's what we see happening today in churches. Ask ourselves, are our, our sexual ethics any different you know, there's a lot of young people today that don't even know that the Bible has a contrary view when it comes to homosexuality. Because nobody's ever told them. Because too many Christians have been scared into silence about the issue. You speak out on it, well, what happens? I told my grandkids last night, I was talking to one of them and I'm texting them and I said, hey, uh, I said, it was a long day, I'm going home now. And... Uh, I said, yeah, I'm going to go home and put on a robe and dress up like Jesus and go around the neighborhood and hand out tracts and candy to the kids. <laughs> Grandpa, are you really going to do that? So I'd probably get arrested if I did, so no, I'm not going to do it. So bribery, greed, adultery, sexual sin. Look at verse 8. Here they lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. This is the third thing that they're indicted for. And, and this is, speaks to their selfishness, their selfishness. And we don't get this just by reading that. It's really alluding to a law in Deuteronomy 
where basically it says if a garment was given as a pledge that you were going to pay your bills, in other words, you give them a, a, a part of your clothes, say, hey, I'll pay you back and when I do, that garment is to be given to you before the sun goes down. You can't keep it because your garments were basically like a blanket back then. It was, it was to keep you warm. But what was happening in Amos's day is they were keeping those garments. And they were doing what? They were inflicting misery on the poor. Uh, even though they were supposed to, by the law, give it back to them so they could at least use it at night and take it the next day, whatever. But they didn't. And people were living for themselves really at the expense of others. Hello? Do we see that today? I think so. That's being reflected in the church in a lot of ways. We have to be careful how we present our finances to the Lord. We want to make sure that we're not being selfish. I mean, God doesn't need our money. We know that. It should be a privilege. It should be something that we do out of joy, knowing that we're contributing to something eternal work. But they weren't. They were, they were guilty of selfishness, basically, is how I would boil that down. And then in verses 9 to 10, it says they were guilty of ingratitude. Ingratitude. It says, yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite. God is kind of recounting what he's done for these people. He says, I'm the one who drove out the Amorite before you. I gave you the promised land in summary here. I, I took you out of Egypt. I delivered you. I did all this stuff. And yet what? You're totally ungrateful. Totally ungrateful. Ask yourself, is there a lack of gratitude in the church today? More personally, is there a lack of gratitude in my own heart today? Have you ever sat down and counted what the Lord has done for you? Yeah, I know he saved you. But do you ever think about, well, the job I have, the money I have, the roof over my head, the clothes on my back, the friends, the relationships, the spouse, the children, the grandchildren, whatever it might be. They were, they were guilty of totally ingratitude. And, and what is ingratitude? Ingratitude is just assuming, well, you, that's, a, that's a right. You know, if you help somebody out and they don't say thanks, what is that? That's ingratitude, right? They're, they're, they're not acknowledging that you went out of your way to help them in some form or fashion. And see, when it's malicious, when it's purposeful, that's, that's when it becomes sin. If it's just something in oversight, that's different. We've all done that. But no, he's saying here they didn't care. They didn't care what the Lord did for them. He has to actually recount it for them. And sometimes when you think of your life and you think, wow, you know what? God allowed me to see my need for the Savior. God allowed me to come to him in repentance and be saved. God has allowed me to be used in ministry or be gifted in this way or that way to help people, whatever it might be. That's all the Lord's doing. It's not you. It's the Lord. And we should have hearts of gratitude, especially as we approach Thanksgiving. 
You know, I remember when we used to host Thanksgiving a lot, we'd start off the dinner and we'd say, this one thing you're thankful for. And sometimes we had a lot of people, so it took a while. Everybody's getting hungry, so sorry, hurry up. You know, but, uh, but it's, it's true. You, you, we really need to stop. It shouldn't be that way, but we really need to stop because we're so, there's a deluge of information and noise in our minds constantly today from every possible source. And so just to get quiet before the Lord and to focus on, Lord, what have you done for me? And to make note of that and to thank him for that. You don't think he appreciates that? You don't think that's going to bless his heart? That you're, you're stopping everything that's important to you and just focusing on how God has worked in your own life? We should all be doing that. Well, not only were they had a sense of ingratitude, um, but verse 12 points out here, he says, but you made the Nazarites drink wine. <laughs> you made the Nazarites drink wine. The Nazarites were a special kind of group of people that were committed to serving the Lord, and they had taken a vow, all right, not to touch strong drink. They took that vow before the Lord. And here you have people in Amos' time forcing them to drink. I remember watching an episode of Gunsmoke and there was like this town drunk guy and he was trying to get clean and he was living out in this cabin and he was pretty much uh, on the straight and narrow. And one of his old buddies from his past came and I don't know if he had some money or something he wanted and he ended up uh, um, just putting the alcohol right in front of his face. Just go, oh, come on, yeah, come on, you know you want it. And he was sticking pretty firm <laughs> to his commitment not to drink anymore. And finally the guy ended up pouring it over his head. And it just took a little trickle to get in this guy's mouth. And, and then the guy forced him to drink some and it was all over. He was drunk again. <laughs> you know, um, that's the kind of thing that's just despicable. And when you stop and you think, you know, all you have to do is talk to, you know, go, go grab a police officer and ask them, you know, do you, do you think alcohol uh, is a problem in our society today? <laughs> Just ask them that question. Even though they drink, okay, most majority of them, they will tell you yes. On a majority of calls, it comes down to one thing. Are they doing drugs or are they drinking alcohol? What, what is going on? And it affects adversely your behavior um, it's behind so many and so much criminal activity but it's become not just a problem out there unfortunately it's become a problem even within the walls of the church at large it's become a problem because people want to get close to it people want to say well you know i can just you know get up close to the edge of sinning you know, I think I can drink, but if I don't get drunk, then it's okay. I think that obviously they drank wine in the New Testament, right? Because they had water issues, so things like that. I don't think it was the wine we have today. And the reason I say that is because if it was, with the alcohol content that we have today, if that's all they drank, they, Jesus and the disciples would always be drunk, okay? Which would have been sinful. So, and they weren't. So it was diluted wine at best. Uh, and they used it as a 
sterilizing agent for water and things like that. And so it's, it's very important that you realize you don't want to, you know, you can't be legalistic about this because even in the New Testament, it says, hey, take a little wine for your stomach. Paul tells Timothy, if it's, if it's bothering you, whatever. And, and, but once again, it's a different kind of wine. Okay? And so you, you just have to be very, very, very careful. But the Bible does forbid drinking what we would call liquor, like strong drink. The Bible does forbid getting drunk. All right? So we just have to manage this well. But I think social drinking is way more acceptable. I mean, I've been out to lunch with pastors in this area. You want a beer? What? I was just like, what? I'm just surprised. Not that it's like some big sin to drink a beer, but I was just like, wow, you're really going to... Oh, yeah, yeah, it's not a big deal. No, that's okay. Um, I'll kill myself with Coke. You know, so. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, it's so important, but it's just become socially acceptable. And I, I, all you have to do is, you know, I come from a family of alcoholics, so I understand this very well, right? And it, it's not an easy thing to deal with sometimes uh, when you see the, the horror and the effect that it does adversely on families and on people. And you, you really want to do this? I mean, it doesn't make any sense to me, but that's that. Well, the last one here that they were guilty of, and this is probably the most important and, and really indicative of all their other behavior, okay? All their other behavior kind of springs out of this. In verse 12, look at what it says. It says... They made the Nazarites to drink wine. Okay, that deals with that. And then it says, and commanded the prophets saying, you shall not prophesy. Can you imagine? They're telling the prophets of God, you shall not prophesy. Do not prophesy. I mean, it's no wonder their values were all messed up. Why? Because they questioned God's revelation. They questioned God's word. They, they were basically telling the prophets, people like Amos, you know, just shut up. We don't want to hear it. Turn away from it. They didn't want to deal with it. All the way back in 81, George Par Barna took a poll. And I don't know what it is today, but he took these polls. And I was just reading these. And it said, what Americans believe. And he surveyed 1,000 Americans 825 of them claim to be Christians. I don't think you would find that today. And he uncovered some disturbing facts on their view when it comes to the view of absolute truth. Right? We believe this word is absolute truth. He found that 28% of those interviewed strongly agree with this statement. Listen to this statement. There is no such thing as absolute truth. 28%. I guarantee you that's through the roof today because our education system's done such a wonderful job with our young people. There's no such thing as absolute truth. Another said 38 said they agreed. 28% strongly agreed. 38% agreed. That in total makes sense. It makes 66% uh, in all. Uh, that there is no such thing as absolute truth. And then it said 23% of those people claim to be born-again Christians, not just Christians, but born-again Christians, 
they strongly agreed that there is no such thing as absolute truth. Can you believe that? I mean, we have a problem rejecting God's revelation because God's revelation is absolute truth. He also reported that only 58% of Christians' adults claim to read something from the Bible each week. Remember when they used to give out Gideon Bibles? They used to do it at high schools, actually. Down, they'd do down Sequoia. They'd be on the corner and give them students Bibles as they'd leave. Um, a lot of times you go to a hotel today, you don't see a Bible. You might see a Book of Mormon, but you don't see a Bible. There's been a purging of God's word. The revelation of God is, is slowly but surely being rejected. And, and you know what? That is disastrous when it comes to a nation. When you're turning your back on the only source of truth that you have, where are you going to go? As an individual, if you reject God's revelation... You're going to be lost forever, forever. But there are consequences of judgment for a nation that rejects God's revelation. There's a higher criticism thought process that, that kind of created itself, and it, it had its rise in Germany in the mid-18th century into the, the early 20th century. And basically, it, it questions, this higher criticism, questions the authority and the veracity of God's Word. It's incredible to think, as Dave talked about last week, how the Word of God came from that, that, that land, that from that same land came this higher criticism that questioned God's authority, even though it was them that put this the Word of God into the hands of the people, the land of Luther, rediscovered those great truths of the gospel. One commentator said this, also from that land that rejected God's revelation came two of the greatest monsters, monsters the human race has ever seen, Karl Marx and Adolf Hitler. See, there are consequences, my friends, when you reject God's revelation. So Amos here is crying out. His name, once again, means burden, right? He's, he's, he's being pressed under this burden of sin. He sees all the stuff going on around him. And you know what? I pray that I have more of a burden for the sin in our churches and in our society than what I do. We need to have more of a burden like Amos had for the very sins of our own people, of our own nation. Maybe even the sins we cherish in our own hearts. See, God is roaring through Amos. And when you come to a point where there's no difference between the church, God's people, and the world, we have a real, real problem. Um, Amos was God's man under God's burden with God's message. Even though he was a farmer, even though he had no credentials, but he desired to 
serve his community by letting them know, look, this is what God is saying. And next week, we're going to find out what their, some of their reaction is. See, there's, there's always grace from the hand of the Lord if you're willing to repent, if you're willing to confess your sins and renounce anything that wrong that you've been involved in. You come to the foot of the cross afresh. That's, that's the Christian way, right? That's why Jesus died for us. But you have to repent. You have to be willing to admit that. And, and God is a God of justice. We need to make sure that we are purposeful in our, in our walk and in our relationship with the Lord, not just you know something that eh, we just go to church on Sunday and, and that's it. It's not affecting us the rest of the week. Next week, we're going to get into a little more about how um, and, and why God judges his people. I mean, you think that if you're elect, if you're saved, if you're one of God's children, that you're protected from this. No, you're not. God may not condemn you. There's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. But as a believer, you can definitely be disciplined. You can be chastised by the Lord, and you will be. Any of us will be if we continue in a way that is dishonoring to him or not glorifying to him in any way. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. And Lord, we pray that as we embrace these words from Amos, Lord, that we would look not at other people's lives. Lord, this is, this is a hard message even to study for because it really it causes you to be very reflective of your own heart, to look into your own heart. And I don't stand up here some qualified spiritual giant that don't have issues in any part of my life. Lord, I'm a fallen man like everyone else. And so, Father, I just pray that you would help me to consider my own heart before you. And I pray that for each individual here tonight. Lord, we're quick to judge others and not so quick to judge our own, our own selves. But Paul says you, we should judge our own selves. We need to hold our own selves accountable. And Lord, I just pray that you would give us a burden like Amos had for his community, for his people. Lord, that you would give us a burning desire to see men and women, boys and girls come to Christ here in this peninsula. Lord, you've given us the tools. You've given us your word. You've given us your spirit. You've given us a church. You've given us a campus. You've given us everything we need. Lord, we pray that we would be willing to go out and bring people, drag people, if we need to, to hear the truth. Lord, that they could come to know you as their Lord and Savior. And that we would be faithful to live Christian lives that are a step above the world, a step removed, that we are a peculiar people in this world, that we are holy as you are holy. We're not perfect, but Lord, that we would be ever entertaining that perfection in our behavior, that we would not rest until that day you call us home. Because it is a war, it is a battle. And all of us lose that battle on occasion. But Father, that's where your word says when we do, we come to you and we 
we repent of our sin and we turn to you and we acknowledge your forgiveness in Christ. And so, Father, we just pray that you would just bless our fellowship now around our tables. Help us to have a good evening. Take us home safely and through the rest of the week. We pray for our conference coming up in two weeks, Lord, that you would uh, open up doors, opportunities for us to invite people, to hand out flyers, to uh, just pray that you would draw people to hear uh, what Mike has to say and uh, pray that you would uh, bless our preparation for that as well. Lord, we pray for the nation of Israel. We pray for your people over there. We pray your hand of protection upon them as they go into these war zones and try to rid uh, this area of these terrorist groups. And, and Father, we pray that uh, our nation would not grow weary in supporting them. Lord, it's, it's pure chaos out there right now. But Lord, we know that your hand is over all this. And Father, you will protect Israel. And Lord, I just pray that we'll be on the, the right side um, not only as individuals, but as a nation, Father. So we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.